Well, we are in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, moving along through our study of the book of Acts. I've been encouraged. Have you been encouraged through it, I hope? Okay, two of you. I'm grateful for the both of you. Um, pray with me for the rest. Uh, but let me just remind you, chapter 18, it ends uh, by looking at the ministry, not of the Apostle Paul. So we're in the middle of the third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. But chapter 18 kind of ends by this little aside by looking at two people Paul knew, Priscilla and Aquila. And I, I was mentioning to you how kind of Paul was starting the third missionary journey, but these two, Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, they were starting their first missionary journey. And they had left the city of Corinth, and they had made their way over to the city of Ephesus, and there they encountered a fella at the synagogue. And so Priscilla and Aquila still going there to the synagogue, and there's this fella standing up teaching. An educated man clearly spoke well, uh, knew what he was talking about, knew his Old Testament really, really well talking about a coming Messiah, and as they sat there and as they listened, they came to realize this guy knows all about what John the Baptist taught, prepare the way, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, but he doesn't seem to know that the Messiah actually has come yet. He doesn't seem to know anything about Jesus, and so when the service was over, they took him aside, they began to talk to him, they began to explain to him the way of God. It says that in chapter 18, verse 26, that they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And Apollos was converted to the Christian faith, a good man, a righteous man, looking to live a life that would be pleasing to God and encourage other people in that as well, but had not received all the information yet until Priscilla and Aquila shared that with them. Well, that's how chapter uh, 18 ends. So we have sort of this little aside looking at Apollos. He'll come back up again in our Bibles and looking at Priscilla Aquila, who will also come back up again in our Bibles. As we move now to chapter 19, there's a little quick mention of what happens to Apollos, where he goes next, and then we're going to once again start looking at the Apostle Paul. So let's read the opening verses of chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Now as it, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, then, into what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. And Paul said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I think we would all recognize there's, there's a lot of material between verse 4 and 5. And so he said, John baptized in the Jesus. All right, well, good. Baptize me in that. And there's, he explained a lot more other stuff in between there that's not recording, recorded. But anyhow, verse 5 continues, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And there were about 12 men in all. We're not going to talk about um, all seven of those verses today. We're going to return to the last couple of verses next week when we're together. And today we're going to focus our time on the first five verses that are, that are there. Now, I'll remind you, Paul is, has begun his third missionary journey, 1823, 
um, points that out, how he embarked. And first we learned he went to the regions of Galatia. He went to the region of Phrygia. Do we have that map for that? I think we do. No maps? Map? There. Um, so he went to those regions. So remember, he was down in the bottom right corner, that black dot there. That was his home church. And he made his way to that region. He had been there before. He had talked to believers in places like Tarsus and Lystra, Iconium, the other Antioch that is up there. He's been to all those places. He had ministry there. People came to the Lord in those places. And as it says in 1823, he wanted to return to those places to strengthen the disciples. I, I have to imagine, you know, give a teaching and then just open the floor. What questions do you have? How can I help you? What have you been dealing with? And he, he wanted to strengthen the disciples in those particular places. As we come now to chapter 19, the part that we just read, Paul's going to leave that region and he's going to go to Ephesus. And I think we have a map of that. Look at this. Uh, that's going to be the red dot. And so he's going to head off over to Ephesus. Now you remember, maybe if you were with us, he had been to Ephesus before. He had wanted to really go to Ephesus before. The opportunity didn't present itself or the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. But at the conclusion of his second missionary journey, he did stop by the city of Ephesus for a short time. He interacted with some folks. He seemed to have some effect uh, in ministry with some folks. They begged him, please stay a little bit longer. There's so much we have to learn. And he said, I'd love to, but I can't. I have to get out of here. I got to get to Jerusalem. I got to fulfill this particular vow. But look, if the Lord wills, I will be back. I want to come back. I'm not leaving because I don't like you people or something like that. And he does go back. And so we see that Paul was first a man of his word. We see that he really meant it. He wasn't just giving sort of nice, you know, platitudes. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go shopping with you and sit there all day. You know, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Some men say that. Uh, Paul really meant it. He really wanted to go back to Ephesus if he could. And he does as we begin chapter uh, 19. Uh, if you look for a moment, look down at verse 8. It says there that he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. So he stayed there for three months and did what he always did. Went to the synagogue first and started talking to people that, uh, to the Jewish people that believed in uh, the scriptures. He would open up those Old Testament scriptures to them. Look down at verse 10 for a second. We see while he is there, after he stopped going to the synagogues, that he began to minister there. It says, which, and it continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, now remember, Asia, Asia at that time was a, a small region, much like Phrygia, much like Galatia and some of those others, um, not the big continent that we're thinking of today on our maps, but it says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so he did his synagogue ministry for about three months. He did his open-air ministry, whatever that might have looked like, as it says here, um, for two years. And so Paul is going to stay in Ephesus for 27 months or more, two, two and a quarter years, two and a half years or so he stayed there. He really meant it when he said, I want to come back. This is a city that he wanted to go to. It was a city that they estimate the population was about 330,000 people in that day, a huge city. That's as many people as live in all of Mercer County today, 330,000 people in that city. And Paul realized, if I can reach them they're going to go scatter. They're going to go other places and do the things that they do and people do in life, and they're going to bring that gospel. This is the place i got to get to. And so he goes there, and he begins to minister in the city of Ephesus, which he'll do, as I said, for almost two and a half years. 
Let's go back and look verse by verse, starting again in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. That final phrase, is, that sentence there is what I want to dig in on a little bit, where he found, as it says, some disciples. If you look down at verse 7, it tells us the number of them. There was about 12 men in all. So there's about 12 disciples, people that are called disciples. Remember the word disciples simply means a learner. What we're not told is of whom they were learners of. Now we, we imagine, we think, our tendency is to conclude that because in the Gospels, disciples is a term that is often used to describe those that were learners of Jesus, followers of Jesus. We have the 12 apostles. They were disciples. We know the number went all the way up to 70. How cute is this baby? I, I saw every single eye look at the baby and not me. I understand. Keep my eye on you, Javier. Yeah. So the term disciples is a term that is commonly used in the Gospels to describe those that are followers of Jesus. But the term in and of itself means learner. It means one that is a follower of a teacher. And so here we are introduced to the fact that in Ephesus, Paul came across and he found some disciples. Don't necessarily conclude that they were Christians because they may or they may not be, and I'll explain what I think they actually are in a moment here. They're not necessarily followers of Jesus, because once more, a disciple was simply a student or a follower or a learner of a particular teacher. And so we learn in our Bibles that Paul, when he was younger, was a disciple of a man named Gamaliel. He was a learner of that particular rabbi. In John chapter 1, we take note that John the Baptist had disciples. Verse 35 of that chapter, it says, now the next day again, John's uh, standing with two of his disciples, two people that were learners of his, and how he looked at Jesus and he said, behold the Lamb of God. What a wonderful account in our scriptures. Last week we saw that Apollos, that he went about telling others about the way of the Lord, and then it told us last week, though he knew only the baptism of John. And we drew the conclusion last week that Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. And so here when we read that Paul found some disciples there in Ephesus, that does not necessarily mean that he found Christian disciples there in Ephesus. In fact, I think the account goes on to indicate pretty clearly that he didn't. And the reason why I bring it up is because this text is oftentimes used to make the case that there are some Christians that have the Holy Spirit and that there are other Christians that don't have the Holy Spirit. And the reason why they do is because they assume that we're talking about Christian disciples. And then secondly, Paul asks the question, do you have the Holy Spirit? But that all comes down to the fact whether or not, and then they answer no, by the way. And it all comes down to this idea, are they Christian disciples or disciples of someone else? If these men were disciples of Jesus, if these men were Christians, the fact that they say, no, we don't have the Holy Spirit, never even heard of him, would be problematic for our theology. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit enters into all believers upon their conversion. And so that is when they believed, uh, when they believed. And yet, Paul's question would seem to indicate otherwise. 
Let me give you some reasons why we believe this. Paul would later write in the book of Romans these words, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, not a believer. The book of Ephesians would later write this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, when he was discussing the oneness of the body of Christ in that particular chapter, he said this, For in one spirit we were all baptized, initiated into one body, Jews or Greeks, Gentiles, slaves or free, all were made to drink, participate, of one spirit. And so those verses, among others, seem, to pretty clear, to seem pretty clear that all believers in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, who is also oftentimes called or also called the Holy Spirit. And so then if these disciples did not have the Holy Spirit, then they can't be disciples of Christ. Does that reasoning make sense? Maybe you don't agree, but you at least see where I'm coming from there. And so then the reference to these folks as disciples must be then indicating that they were disciples of someone else. And I think the rest of the text pretty clearly points that out, that these were not followers of Jesus, but if you look at verse 3, they were followers of John, John the Baptist. Again, look at verse 3. Paul asked, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. I kind of imagined a little bit the conversation going like this. Paul saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The disciples saying, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Paul saying, well, then what then were you baptized in? And them responding, well, into John's baptism. And so somehow these folks had heard and received the message of John. Just like Apollos did. We saw that last week when he was back in Alexandria or perhaps he had traveled over to Israel when John was there earlier in his life. But uh, these folks had heard and received the message of John, just like Apollos had done. And they were followers of John. They liked what he had to say. They received what John had to say. And so what, again, was John's message? We looked at it last week. It's helpful to look at it again. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Baptism, in that instance there specifically, it served as a symbol of their repentance, the symbol of what John was calling people to. If you were listening to John and you're like, I don't know, this guy's crazy, then you'd walk away and you wouldn't get baptized. But if you were listening to John and you said, you know what, this guy's right, then you would get baptized. It was a symbol of your receiving what it was that John had to say. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, let me put it in other words here, which I believe is what he's trying to communicate. Repent, for the Messiah is coming, and each of us need to get ready for that coming. That was John's message. That's what John was that voice crying in the wilderness to wake up the children of Israel, the people of Israel. That was the message that he brought. That's what Apollos had been declaring before Priscilla and Aquila took it aside. And that's what these disciples were presently now walking in, readying themselves for the coming of the Messiah. They knew 
that they were to repent. They knew, if you will, that they were to kind of look around to see where the Messiah, when he would come on the scene. They knew they were to prepare themselves for the coming of Messiah. But just like Apollos in the previous chapter, what they did not realize is that the Messiah had already actually come. Nor, and I think this is the main point of the passage today, nor did they know of the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower us in that repentance. And so they knew what John said, you need to get yourselves ready for the coming of the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to change your mindset, which is going to lead to a change of direction. But they didn't know the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Listen, repentance is incredibly difficult to do without the power of the Holy Spirit from within. Repentance is incredibly difficult without the power of the Holy Spirit from within. Trying to change a sin pattern without a true internal change that takes place first is nearly impossible and it rarely ever lasts. You can do it for a period of time and you can kind of plug away through it and maybe you'll get victory or you'll conquer this particular sin, but then some new sin is going to develop that will replace it. And so I stop smoking, if you think that's a sin, I stop smoking and I eat all day. And now I'm 500 pounds, better off with the clogged arteries or something like that, you know, that kind of a thing. But it almost never lasts. You go right back to where you were before. It has to be to have victory, eternal or a lasting victory, it has to be an internal thing. And it seems that something about Paul's interaction, we're not told exactly what, but something about Paul's interaction with this group of men led him to conclude that their knowledge of the Christian faith was imperfect. Something led him to conclude, I'm not sure I'm talking with believers in Jesus Christ here. And it was that incomplete knowledge that they were demonstrating that leads Paul to ask them the question that he doesn't ask of anybody else uh, in his missionary journeys. He asked them the question about uh, whether they had received the Holy Spirit. There was something about their interaction that gets Paul wondering if these believers were truly believers. Something about his interaction with them that caused him to wonder, I wonder if these guys have actually received the Holy Spirit. I wonder if they have experienced the empowering that comes with having received the Holy Spirit. Again, I imagine the conversation. So a few pleasantries. What's your name? Where are you from? Nice to see you. Those kinds of things. And then the disciples saying, look, we just want to honor the Lord. We want to live lives that are pleasing to him. We, we want to really put ourselves in a place where we are ready for all that he wants to do in us and through us. And Paul responded to him and saying, well, that sounds great. How's it going? How's that life you know, going? And the disciples say, well, it's good. There's some ups, there's some downs. Sometimes I feel, we feel we're a little more motivated than others. You know how it is. We stumble a lot. And Paul kind of getting that RCA dog look, you know, turning his head, trying to understand what's going on here. And Paul says, huh, that's interesting. And then he asks, he says, and how about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit help you overcome those times of weakness? And then these disciples, they turn their head like the RCA dog. Who? And Paul says, the Holy Spirit. And they say, who's the Holy Spirit? 
And the conversation sort of goes from there. Notice in verse 3 that it tells us their response is, we've never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Paul then, the RCA dog again, I'm going to drop it, all right? But he turns his head and he says, well, then into what were you baptized? And I think the reason why Paul says that, you remember Jesus' great commission, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you were baptized, you had the very least heard it there, unless you're underwater or something like that. Um, so you would have heard it there, the, the name, the mention of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul asks in verse 3, how is it that you were baptized and yet you were unfamiliar with the Holy Spirit? And they said, well, we, and then he asked the question, what were you baptized into? And they said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. So these 12 Ephesian disciples, I think it's pretty clear, they were in the same place that Apollos was in the previous chapter. They knew John's message. They knew about repentance. They knew about getting ready for the coming of the Messiah, but nothing beyond that. Paul will then go on to explain just what Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, which is Jesus. And no doubt he told them a lot more. And he explained, you know, much of what we're familiar with in having read the Gospels of the things that Jesus did and the interactions that he had and the way that the authorities um, arrested him and turned him over to the Romans and the way that the Romans crucified him and the way that Jesus could have stopped it, but he didn't stop it. And how he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and how he knew he needed to go to the cross and how that didn't end it. And he told him maybe about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the Messiah and how Jesus had a meal with them. And he began to explain to them what the scripture said about the Messiah and how when Jesus broke the bread, they saw his hands, probably the nail holes that were in his hands or in his wrist. And they knew that it was Jesus and he had disappeared from them. He began to explain to them the full account, which they had not heard of. And these disciples come to the place of faith. None of that is mentioned between verse 4 and 5, but we have to imagine that Paul included that information in this brief account that Luke gives us. And so we read in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. John's baptism was a baptism of preparation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. The Messiah is coming. Jesus' baptism is a, is a celebration. It's not just about preparation. It's a celebration of the Messiah and what the Messiah has done and how he has cleansed us of a sin, our sin. And it's our symbol of what has gone on inside each of us. It's a public acknowledgement that they had received Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. That's what they do. In verse 5 there, excuse me. Now before moving on to verse 6, I want to return to it for a moment and kind of bring our sermon time to a close with this. I want to return back to verse 2. And you remember with verse 2, it was the first time that imaginatively I suggested the way that Paul came to this conclusion that they had not received the Holy Spirit. I, I made a couple statements then. One, that there was something about their interaction that got Paul wondering if these believers were actually believers. That there was something about his interaction with them that caused them to wonder if they had the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit within them. 
And I think what we are seeing here is a group of people that is trying to live lives of repentance, that is trying to live lives of holiness, but that was having extreme difficulty in doing so. A group of people that who, despite their best efforts and intentions, kept having their flesh rear itself and dominate in their lives. To use some of the phraseology of Scripture, they had a desire to do what was right, but they didn't have the ability to carry out that desire. And so the result then was constant ups and downs, a step or two forward, and then a sudden sudden dropping back, a victory in their life, which was quickly followed up with a stumbling and a failure. And can I just say, that is not a very fun way to live life. It's a depressing circumstance. It's frustrating. It's dejecting. It leads one to almost want to give up, concluding, well, what's the use? I'm never going to advance forward anyway. And Paul senses that that's what's going on with these folks. They were disciples of John. I think we could just call them and think of them as religious people, trying to be righteous and live good lives worthy of God. They just couldn't find it in themselves to consistently do that. Now, how would Paul know? He comes on the scene, he talks to him five minutes, and he can conclude all these things, and maybe God revealed it into him, but I don't think so, because he asked questions of them to try and get the answers from them. So how would Paul know in such a short little span of time what these people are wrestling with and how they're dealing with these things? I think the answer is because Paul himself used to live in that sort of a condition. That Paul himself was in the exact place at a point in his life as well. Paul was also a religious guy trying to do the right thing who kept coming up short. And he wrote about it in our Bibles, one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible. A friend, I think he said, if I had one page of the Bible and that's all I could have, this would be the page that I would want. And it's Romans chapter 7. So if you would please turn there with me in your Bibles. We're going to spend a little bit of time in there as we bring our time to a close. But this is in Romans chapter 7. And Romans 7, in Romans 7, Paul is engaged in a section of material where he's discussing the law. And by that, he's referring to the Old Testament. So he's referring to the Old Testament law of God. And building up to this place in our scriptures, he's been telling these Christians that they were no longer bound to the regulations of the Old Testament law. And then as we come to verse 7 of chapter 7, he's going to ask them a question. He's going to say, well then, is the law sin? Is the law bad? Is the Old Testament law something that we should put out of our minds and and never think of again? And his conclusion is, by no means. Verse 7, who then, or excuse me, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Continuing verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life 
proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it is righteous and it is good. Paul asks, is the law sin? No, he says, the law is not sin. The law accomplished exactly what it was designed to accomplish in Paul's life. It revealed to him that he was a sinner. Now, what the law did not do, and what the law cannot do, it can never do, is empower us to overcome that sin. The purpose of the law, Paul says in verse 12, was to establish what is holy, what is righteous, and what is good. You see that there in verse 12. The law sets a standard. How we live, how Paul lived up to that standard, is no reflection on the law. It's a reflection on us. It's a reflection on the Apostle Paul. The law is the law. It sets out a standard. What you do with it is not a reflection on it. It's a reflection on you. And so how we live up to that standard doesn't reveal whether the law is good or bad or sin, to use the term that he uses here, but rather it reveals whether I am good or bad or a sinner or not a sinner. Paul goes on in verse 7 or in verse 13 in chapter 7, and he says, Did that which is good then, the law, bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin that produced death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me that does. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, because I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing, what I keep falling back to. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's a lot of stuff there. The Old Testament law wasn't designed to help me overcome sin. The Old Testament law was designed to magnify my sin. The Old Testament law was designed to reveal my need. The Old Testament law wasn't meant to prove to me, or it was meant to prove to me, that I can't do it. I can't live a life of repentance. I can't live a life of righteousness. To use Paul exa Paul's example from his life, I can't stop coveting what other people have. His point in that whole section of in verse 10 about the very commandment that promised life proving to be death to me, that's his proof. It's exactly that, that I can't do it. So Paul wasn't acquitted by the law, by the commandment, but rather he was condemned by the commandment. Are you with me? The commandment defined for him the mark that he was missing. And that is what I believe these disciples from Ephesus are discovering. And so then as disciples of John, they discovered the righteous standard that God required. 
They discovered the way in which they had been falling short of that standard. They discovered their need that since they fell short of that standard, that they needed to repent of that falling short. And then, as John would later say in the early parts of our Gospels, they learned that they needed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's John's words. That's where everything fell apart. That's where the requirement entered in that they could not keep. That was the requirement that would drive them to despair, as it does so many. And to them, Paul no doubt declared what he would later write to the church in Rome. This continues, Romans 7. Paul said, so I find it to be a law. Now that's kind of confusing there because we've been talking about the Old Testament and referring to that as the law, and here he uses the word law. So I like to replace here this word law with, I find a rule, I find a principle. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, I see in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Notice Paul's conclusion. I think this is what he encountered with those disciples. Paul's conclusion about himself, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's his conclusion. I'm a wretch. Like again, Jay wears a shirt. I'm the wretch the song sings about. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Paul had that conclusion. I'm a wretch. I can't do it. I'll never be able to do it. I might as well just, just give up. Paul knows exactly what these 12 men in Ephesus are experiencing, which is why he asks them that question in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit when you believe? And the reason why I think this is the connection of all these things is because the next thing that Paul will say in that Romans passage where he tells us his story of how he wrestled with his desire to do good but no strength to do it, oh wretched man that I am, this is how Paul draws that all to a conclusion. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one who will deliver me. Paul goes on from there in the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What were the Ephesians, Ephesian disciples experiencing? Condemnation. What had Paul previously experienced? Condemnation. What are some of us in this room that are trying to live the Christian life, experiencing what do we experience on a regular basis? A lot of us experience condemnation. I know what I'm supposed to do. I just can't do it on a consistent basis. I run out of juice. I run out of energy. I run out of uh, unction and desire. And I fall right back to where I was before. It's impossible to live a religious life, a righteous life for the long haul. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Paul says here, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Remember the question that he asked of the Ephesians, Ephesians back in the Acts passage. Essentially the question was, well, what about the Spirit? Notice what he says in Romans 8. Again, Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2 picks up, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I want to skip down to verse 11 of Romans chapter 8 where he says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That is where the power to live the Christian life comes from. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in you. And so these disciples of John trying to live a life that was pleasing to God, but not having the power within them to do so. Not yet believers in Jesus Christ, but yet trying to live a life as if they were. And such attempts only lead to a lack of joy, frustration, and ultimately a lack of direction. And some of us here today may be experiencing that continual failure. And the reason why I know that is the Apostle Paul did. I did, I know, like, like I'm greater than Paul. That's what that sounded like. That's not what I meant. But I experienced that continual failure for about, one year, for about a year of my Christian walk where I was trying to be good, I was trying to do right, I was trying not to sin, I was trying to do what I was supposed to be doing. And I did okay for a week or two weeks or a month or three months or five months or whatever. And it was just this constant struggle until I finally failed in a significant way and I finally just gave up. Not gave up the Christian walk, but God, I can't do it. I, I shared a sermon once at the college in New Jersey and it was entitled, God Wants You to Fail. They never asked me to come back again. But, but it meant so much to me because it was the story of my Christian walk where I failed in a significant way and I finally gave up. And the Lord, almost like he said, finally, now will you trust me? Now will you allow me to empower you? Now will you walk in the empowering of the Holy Spirit? And I did. And that changed my walk with Jesus for the next 30 years or so of my life. Some of us here may be experiencing that, continual failure, the subsequent lack of joy that that brings. And I think there are two reasons why that that is happening in our lives. The first, some of us here are like these disciples in Ephesus, and we're experiencing these things because we have never surrendered ourselves to Christ and we never actually have become a follower of Christ. Now you're here. You may be a follower of religion. You may be a follower of somebody else's teachings. But you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And the reason why we're continually failing, those that are in that place are continually failing and lacking in joy, is because you're trying to live a life that you have no power to live. You're trying to live a life in the Spirit, and yet there's the absence of the Spirit in your life. And so if that describes you, the place for you to begin is at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
The place to begin is the place where the penalty for sin, your sin, was paid. The place to begin is by acknowledging your need for a Savior to save you from the penalty of your sin and also even the power of sin. And in a moment, as we get ready for communion, I'm going to encourage some of you to go to that place of the cross and receive Christ into your life. But I suspect most of us here, it's a Sunday morning, you're at church, I suspect most of you here are followers of Jesus Christ. And you've come to the cross, you've acknowledged your need, you've received the gift of eternal life that is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. And yet, there are still some of us in this room that have done that, but are still experiencing the failure of continually coming up short. And the answer isn't something, again, as I said earlier, that it took me a year of my Christian walk to learn. For almost a year, I was a believer in Christ. I was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but I was living as if I hadn't been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And don't misunderstand, I'm I'm not saying that I was purposefully living a life of hypocrisy. I wasn't. I was trying. I wasn't saying one thing and doing another on some regular basis. I was really trying. And actually, I was sinning a whole lot less than I had before I started going to church and Bible studies and become a follower of Jesus. But I just kept coming up short. I kept missing that mark that I was aiming for. And the reason, I know now, is because I was living as if I did not have the Holy Spirit. I was living in dependence upon my own efforts, like the disciples in Ephesus. Instead of dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, I was attempting to live a life of godliness without relying upon the Spirit of God. And I said earlier, I said this earlier, that first group of people, you need to begin at the place of the cross. Well, I think this group of people, you've already gone to the cross. I think you need to begin at the place of the grave. I think you need to begin at the place of the empty tomb. And we know that there's an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem where Jesus' body was laid, but that he rose again from that place. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8.11. He said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I think the place for those of us that are struggling with that up and down, that up and down, why bother, I'll never have strength in this area. I think you need to go remind yourself of something maybe you already know in your head. But you need to remind yourself of what the empty tomb actually means. That if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, what, what kind of power would that take? What kind of an impact did that have? If that same spirit dwells in you, what kind of power can that have in your life? What kind of an impact can that have in your life? Today we're going to celebrate communion. Looking back to the work of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to just look at the cross today. Because Jesus died on a cross, and that was it. How would we know what what he accomplished there? Somebody has said the cross is the payment. The grave, the empty grave, is the receipt. We know what he accomplished because the grave is empty. 
And so I want to take just a few minutes, a time of prayer. We, we finished early on purpose to have some time to pray. And as we do, let's just all quietly pray to ourselves. So it'll just kind of be silent here in the room. And you heard what you heard today. I have to imagine the Holy Spirit was saying what the Holy Spirit was saying uniquely to you. So let's just take a few moments so that each of us can commune with him. <laughs> 